For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. So, John, love of yes. my life. Yep. I was reflecting on what it was like before Sunbasket for us. Yes. It was uh, It was tough. It was a struggle. Both of us work. <laughs> yep. Um, Hard. Both of us have tendency to, uh, some. you know, like anybody else who works, we have long days. Sometimes you can overlook doing things like um, shopping for groceries. You prioritize other stuff. You prioritize other stuff. We're not, we both work on self-care a lot. And actually that's one thing that, that, you know, going grocery shopping is something like a good responsible adult should do, but we both work really hard and don't prioritize taking care of ourselves sometimes. And that means that we come home and snip at each other about whose turn it is to cook dinner. Right. So what I like about Sunbasket is you get the box, Right. We got three dinners. Three dinners. Um, the, three proteins usually because yeah, we're, we're, we're meat eaters. The, the meals are great. They're healthy. The produce is, I mean, I don't know how you feel, very fresh. <laughs> I feel like it's very fresh. Very fresh. And it's responsibly raised and sourced usually That's what locally. I yep. Yep. Those are bonuses, right? For you, you're mainly on the fresh part. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I've learned a lot about cooking, which is fun. Even though they're like Lego meals, you still have an opportunity to learn. Yeah. I feel like um, I've learned like the weirdest thing that I thought I knew that I learned from cooking Sun Basket is how important heat is. That sounds like it's a simple thing, yep. but simple like, things like that. Uh, no, I really have liked Sun Basket. Um, I like the flexibility too. If you're vegan, you can go vegan. I mean, I'm not, but it's nice to see that they offer that. We have thought about doing the gluten-free option. You can do gluten-free. Um, Lean and clean. I'm not sure how many proteins you can is. pick from. I mean, yeah. I've never. But, uh, and Mediterranean anyway. is one that actually I also is on my list, but we've just been kind of getting. Mediterranean the, diet? Yeah, Mediterranean oh, I diet. I have heard of that. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of like olive oil. Although okay. there's already a lot of olive there's oil. There's already a lot of yeah. olive oil in the cooking. But anyway. No, I like it. I really do. And you heavily even, endorse it. Yep. And you don't even like see, like I do when I go on the website, there's actually 18 different meals per week that you can choose from. Like I usually- Oh, make, see, I didn't even know that. I make the executive decision for there you us go. on that one. Well, um, you make good decisions. Thank you very much. Uh, let's see, lately we've had albacore tuna with green beans and soft cooked eggs. Um, and also what I really like about it uh, is that it's a little less intensive on the packaging than some other of the baskets of the, the food delivery boxes mm-hmm. that you can have. Mm-hmm. So it feels more responsible. And the thing I like the most about it is that it allows us to spend more time with each other just enjoying each other's company. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like you want to, like cooking and eating should be. 
you know? Uh, and if you listeners, you want to try Sunbasket, you can go to Sunbasket and you will both learn more and you will get $35 off your first order. If you go to sunbasket.com slash friends uh, to learn more and get $35 off again, at sunbasket.com slash friends. There is something for everyone at Sunbasket and there's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. Sunbasket.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox and welcome to With Friends Like These, a podcast where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Now, if you are a very online person, which I kind of assume you are because you're a podcast listener, you may be familiar with a very particular sort of also very online person, the militant atheist. Uh, Their most visible uh, members or leaders include Sam Harris and Bill Maher and a lot of people on my Twitter feed. But I'll be honest, those aren't the people I think of when I think of atheism. I think of my dad, I think of my friend Jake, and I think of my friend and today's guest, Chris Stedman. Because atheists aren't necessarily represented by the loudest among us, and that's true for almost any identity, right? And atheism as an identification is growing. You probably know some atheists, whether you know it or not. But while atheism is growing as an identification, it's still struggling to find a cohesive identity. And as people are moving away from religion and into atheism or agnosticism, they are searching for leaders and for guidance, which is why Chris is very concerned by the relationship between atheism and the alt-right. So today, he and I will discuss both his journey away from religion and away from movement atheism and why he thinks it's important for those of us who call themselves atheists to call out bigotry and intolerance. And stick around for the last segment of the program where we're joined by one of my very favorite people, Diana Butler Bass, for a segment on intolerance and forgiveness. Uh, Diana is a historian of religion and most recently the author of Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving. But first, Chris. Chris is a Minneapolis-based writer, activist, and community organizer, and he is the author of Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with a Religious. Here, right now, in studio, Chris Stedman. Chris, it's so good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's a treat to have someone actually in the studio, uh, and we're, I'm going to have to explore the, the wonders of like what the Minneapolis intelligentsia like has to offer. Um, but you're here first. Um, your piece in Vice about atheism and the alt right really interesting. I think probably will take some people aback hmm. because I think we're used to thinking of the rise of the alt right in conjunction with Christian white nationalism, or at least yeah, that's yeah. sort of the the way that the lens that I've seen when it comes to faith. So atheists tend to be younger, whiter, and more likely to be uh, men than the general public. So there's a demographic overlap with the alt-right already. Um, Then you take into account the fact that atheists are a marginalized population in the United States. Uh, They experience um, sort of social isolation in some cases, family rejection. They 
Um, a number of studies have shown that atheists are uh, one of the more negatively viewed religious or philosophical communities in the country, statistically tied with Muslims. Um, and so you've got this population of people who experience social isolation in some ways and who also lack access to the same kinds of or some of the same kinds of support resources that their religious peers get. They don't have spaces to turn to in times of need. Um, they don't have uh, places where they can go and reflect their values, at least not in the same way. And places so, where they can be of service also and mm-hmm. make a connection to other people in beyond themselves. Exactly. And so a lot of these folks, especially atheists who perhaps don't feel like they can be open about their atheism with family or friends, are seeking out these kinds of resources um, or connection to other people online. And oftentimes that can be a really good thing. I mean, there's programs like the Clergy Project, which I talk about in my Vice piece, um, that help support clergy who no longer believe, um, helping them find resources and connect with others. And so there are certainly good things about the fact that a lot of atheist community and connecting happens online. But I think when you Think about the sort of demographic overlaps, the fact that some of the biggest names in atheism are sort of talking about things, uh, about issues that are, you know, that are sort of sympathetic to the alt-right. Bridge issues in some way. I would say like a a bridge of intolerance. (laughs) Right. And that's, you know, one thing I want to be really clear on is I'm not saying that Dawkins or Harris are alt-right. I mean, I would never say that. But I do think that there is... Reason to be concerned about the fact that they are lifting up people or associating themselves with people who are affiliated with the alt right in some way. And well, well, actually, we the, the sort of the headline of your piece. I don't want to get too far without mentioning it, which is that Richard Spencer mm-hmm. was interviewed by a prominent yeah. atheist uh, podcaster, and his himself an atheist. Yeah, that was kind of part of what prompted this for me, because this is something I've noticed over the course of, you know, I've been involved in movement atheism for a long time now. And over the years, I've noticed a bit of a shift happening where you've got more and more people, you know, who were kind of talking about dogmatic religionists and they were kind of on, you know, that was kind of the focus of their attention, um, especially folks who are anti-theist. Which I think it's actually important to acknowledge. There was a study done by the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga that surveyed members of these atheist organizations. So again, where you're, I think, more likely to find some of the more kind of passionate folks, right? And even among those folks, only 15% considered themselves anti-theist. So this is really, it is a minority perspective. It's just a very vocal sort of contingent, but... They're also the people who get angry online. Well, I was going to say that the other thing that study found is that the folks who did consider themselves anti-theists had the highest rates of dogmatism and anger is what the, the study found. And so you've got over the years, I've seen more and more of these people sort of shift their focus a bit from dogmatic religionists to dogmatic social justice warriors and treating them in sort of the same way. And I think it opens up, again, a doorway to... You know, if you've got people, we know that the alt-right very intentionally targets people who are looking for a sense of belonging, who are, you know, angry, who are looking for to sort of be in, involved in something and, and find a sense of purpose. And then if you take into account the fact that you we've got this demographic overlap, so more atheists are young white men who are seeking out community online, and the big names in atheism are sort of shifting some of their focus from dogmatic religionists, quote unquote, to dogmatic social justice warriors. To me, it's a, it's a, a sort of conflation of or it, it's a it, 
it's a, a number of simultaneously arising circumstances that is cause for concern, I think. Especially as, and I, we should make this very clear, as an atheist yourself, that is the perspective that you're coming yeah. from. We didn't really lay that out to begin <laughs> with, and which is that you are a humanist atheist. Um, and you, your early writing about this was about the welcoming aspect of finding an atheist community online, like your own journey mm-hmm. of, of of going from feeling isolated and alone and marginalized to finding a community, right? Absolutely. And, you know, so I've been an atheist activist and and a person who sort of writes about stuff in atheism for the better part of a decade now. And, you know, this is something that I care about a lot. I mean, I, you know, I am deeply concerned about the fact that, you know, there are people out there who are non-religious, who are non-believers like me, who are who do feel disconnected, who are looking for a sense of community. And my concern is that if atheists aren't not only sort of condemning, you know, folks who are promoting this kind of atheism, a kind of atheism that is aligned with white nationalism, uh, then, you know, not only are we not condemning that, we're also not providing a sort of alternative. And, you know, that is, again, that's kind of what got me thinking about writing this piece was seeing Richard Spencer do this interview with this very popular atheist website. And he actually did two interviews with them. And there's a part of me that just like, I can't, I can't even believe that that happened. Yeah. And you know, there were, they, the person who did the interview did, you know, offer some sort of critical words of Spencer in the interview. And, and yet also, you know, to me, it read as a very much a, you know, this person has said some bad things, but also we should really hear them out. And I, and then after that happened, there was kind of silence. And I'm, I'm certain that some people just didn't know the interview happened. You know, we obviously can't see everything. And I don't believe in holding people accountable for not speaking out on every single thing because it's just not possible. Right. But... You know, I, the one thing I talk about in the piece is I spoke with someone at one of the biggest atheist secular organizations in this country, and they told me that there was actually an effort made by staff in the organization to get that organization to put out a statement condemning Richard Spencer, saying this does not represent, you know, our values and our vision for this country and um, and that effort was shot down. And they, there was also a staff effort made to put out a statement criticizing the appointment of Steve Bannon to the White House. And that, too, was shot down. And I asked this person why they thought that was. And they told me that they believe that the organization didn't want to alienate members of their sort of base or their supporters who were involved in the alt-right or sympathetic to the alt-right. And I think being unwilling to... Say do something as simple as to say we sort of we don't support this person. They don't represent who we stand, what we stand for. To me, that's very worrying, especially because we are such a marginal group and we, you know, don't have. I think part of our struggle as a movement sometimes is that we spend a lot of time talking about who, what we're not and what we don't believe and. That means we're not putting as many resources toward, you know, casting a a vision for what a secular life would look like. And that's I mean, that's something, you know, that I have really cared about for a long time. And I think there's there are very real reasons. I mean, beyond sort of condemning the alt-right and not wanting to see people move in that direction, there are real reasons why this is important. I mean, there's some emerging data from 
the Interfaith Youth Corps, an organization that I used to work for in Chicago that promotes dialogue between people of different religious and non-religious backgrounds. And so they did a survey of a number of college and university campuses in the United States, and they found that students who identified as secular humanist, which is a sort of affirmational worldview um, that is secular, non-theistic, and that articulates, you know, values— they found that the students who identified as secular humanist as opposed to the students who identified as atheist, agnostic, non-religious, or nothing, so saying what they're right. not instead of what they are, those, those ones who were secular humanists had a much higher commitment to their worldview. They had a higher pluralism orientation, um, so they were much more open to people having different worldviews than they do and to working with those people and learning from them. In all these different areas, they sort of scored higher than the students who were defining themselves by what they were not. And it may seem kind of common sense, but I really do think that the way that we define ourselves and move through the world uh, plays a huge role in not only how we sort of orient ourselves to the world, to our sort of action, how we sort of act in the world, but it also plays a huge role in how we sort of encounter difference. And I think if the atheist, secular, humanist movement is going to have the kind of impact and reach that I think it can and that I think it needs to in a time when you know, the fastest growing segment of the religious landscape is people who are non-religious The now. nuns, the as nuns, they're called. The yeah. N-O-N-E-S's. Um, I think we, it's very important that we are articulating a positive sort of life stance and not just defining ourselves by what we're not. And I think that that, that sort of reactionary posture um, is perhaps a factor in the increasing number of people who are moving to the alt-right. And this is something that I talked to, I, you know, I spoke with a, a non-religious secular community organizer and writer who's also been involved in the movement for a long time for this piece. And that was one thing that he touched on, uh, which I wrote about, is that there may also be some sort of uh, characteristics, some shared characteristics between atheism as an organized movement and the alt-right in terms of you know, having this kind of reactionary posture and saying, you know, well, I would say if I don't mind, yeah, I'm please interrupt. I will. I you don't use the word trolling <laughs> in your piece, but that's the word that kept coming to mind. Yeah, which is that they both attract a kind of troll personality. Yeah, um, oppositional. Um, see themselves as the kind of last defenders of unfettered, free inquiry who can challenge anything and everything. And also kind of just want to watch the world burn yeah. kind of people. And that's also what I was thinking of when you talked about the difference between defining yourself as a secular humanist and defining yourself as an atheist or a non-religious person or a, an, an agnostic, um, which is I, I actually want to want to ask you just about the language. But, yeah. But. It is there. There it is in the language, which is atheist and agnostic or agnostic, right? Yeah. Um, they're oppositional. Those are inherently oppositional. Whereas secular humanism is like I am pro-human, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I am not against other things because I will say. So, as a person of faith, <laughs> I wait. You're a person of faith. No, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I mean, I, I hope people aren't disappointed that you and I are like hashing it out about like. I mean, we can if you want to, but, but I see, feel like that it's is like what I'm not. Is he like? And I think so we have times. the yeah. what we have in common is like I'm just not interested in that conversation. Yeah. Um, I've and, had that conversation so many times, and you know, and I'm just happy to have you have your set of beliefs, yeah. and I have my set of beliefs, and to look for where those things intersect. Exactly. And when what I see in the atheist movement, the anti-theist movement, is that they are evangelists for atheism. And they have that same personality as like a really strident evangelistic Christian, which is that I am right, you are wrong, and let me tell you why you're wrong. 
right? Yeah. Whereas I feel like the secular human and even in secular humanist position, even if even if that person is an atheist, the term itself doesn't say, and I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this has been the focus of a lot of my work over the years is trying to kind of promote right. a, a different kind of conversation about our religious differences between people who are non-religious and people who are religious. And part of why that is, is that I think it, you know, people are going to be really upset that we're not arguing. <laughs> I just want you to know, because like if my mentions Look. on Twitter are anything to judge by, like every time I mention I'm a Christian, I get like some proportion of people that are like. Rawr, 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 Look, we can find something to argue about. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure we could. Yeah. God, pro con. <laughs> OK, no, I mean, like, sorry. No, yes. it's all it's all good. I mean, look, I think, you know. It's important to me to identify as an atheist, and I do that really frequently and openly, in, in part because there's real stigma attached right. to the word, but also because it's an important feature of my worldview. It's really central to my worldview, right? And part of why I'm motivated to try and find common ground with people who are religious, why I'm motivated to act on the issues that I care about, is because I believe that there's no, there are no divine forces that are going to intervene in human affairs to sort of— If I don't do it, no problems. one else will, right. so I should— Get on it. Exactly. And of course, there are people who are theists who are motivated for different reasons to act in the world. And, you know, but what's more important to me is that we're both motivated to act in the world and trying to find out whether or not our visions for the good life, the sort of shared good life that we can have, align. And certainly I have, I think, more in common with a theist who shares my values, um, who believes in the inherent worth and dignity of all people, who believes that we need to act for a better world, that we need to push back against force, the forces of intolerance and injustice. I have more in common with that person than I do with Richard Spencer, even though Richard Spencer and I are both atheists. And that's why, you know, being an atheist is important, but it's really just the sort of first step in my worldview, Right. Atheism is, okay, I think it's unlikely that there are any divine or supernatural forces. I don't expect any kind of higher power to intervene in my life. But humanism is everything that comes after that, right? And, you know, I think that the atheist movement, and I've seen shifts both concerning shifts, which is part of what I wrote about in the Vice piece, but also encouraging shifts because, but I think the atheist movement needs to continue to move in the direction of articulating what we do stand for. And not only will that help us find common cause and with people outside of our worldview. And in interfaith groups. That's one exactly. of the things that I tell people when I tell people about you, I'm like, well, he's sort of like an atheist pastor in a way. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I don't know if I go that far, but no. I, well, but I, I mean, because what you do is like try yeah. to help people find guidance and community in that faith tradition of non-faith. Totally. I mean, so yeah, that the better part of a decade now, I've yeah. worked as a humanist chaplain and community right. organizer. Humanist chaplain is probably better say, than atheist pastor. But I, mean, but I, I like mean, saying atheist pastor. A lot pastor. of people don't even know what a chaplain is. Period. <laughs> right. But um, basically, what that means is I've been a humanist community organizer right. and I've helped non-religious people find a sense of connection to others, a space to reflect on their values, a, a space of accountability, which I think is so important, where you show up and aren't just comforted and supported, but are also challenged to, you know, stretch beyond your own sort of personal and are my actions, and am I living my values? Exactly. And, you know, my mom, hopefully she doesn't mind me putting her out there like this, but she, you know, I think philosophically she's an agnostic. I don't think she believes that Jesus was literally the son of God or was literally resurrected, but she goes to a church. And the reason, really, the main reason why she goes to a church is because it's a space where she is held accountable, where she shows up and is reminded that she's trying to live her life in a certain way. And she's told me that she finds 
after she's gone to a service and listened to a sermon, she's a lot more likely to kind of go out of her way to help other people and that sort of thing. Would you buy a T-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? We wouldn't. And with Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Is there anything worse than overpaying for something you think you're going to love only to see it fall apart? At Everlane, that doesn't happen. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real cost so you know you're never overpaying. I had a listener one time ask on Twitter, uh, adding me and Everlane about where to find this out. And Everlane responded, and there is like a place on every one of their pages where you can find out the history of the piece of clothes uh, that you're buying. And there is a place on every page in the Everlane catalog where you can find the provenance of the item that you are thinking of buying every step of the process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with because Everlane sells directly to you. Their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers and Everlane's clothes look better, cost less and last longer. Essentials like their cotton crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be simple, stylish and made from quality materials. I happen to love their shoes, which have an extra high vamp. I believe that is what it's called. A listener once let me know. Um, that makes them kind of uh, cool and unique. And I don't know, like I feel better about having all of my toes covered, if that makes sense. Uh, and also, I always get compliments on my uh, Everlane uh, silk shirt, which I believe I saw New York Magazine called it the best silk shirt for women to buy. Um, and based on the compliments I get wearing it, I would assume that that is the case. So if you want to get free shipping on your first order, go to everlane.com slash friends. Again, that's everlane.com slash friends for free shipping on your first order, everlane.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So I grew up in in Minnesota, and I grew up non-religious, um, and I became an, an evangelical Christian when I was 11. And kind of the big reason why is because 
Well, really, there were two reasons. One, my parents were going through a divorce at the time, and so I was looking for a kind of community, a, a source of stability. But the biggest reason was a year prior to converting, I had started reading books like Roots by Alex Haley and Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl and Hiroshima. And so wow, these, Hiroshima I, at yeah. 10? Yes. Okay. I, I know. We can get, uh, <laughs> we can analyze that, you know, <laughs> for them, but then we'll okay, be here okay, for hours. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> but so I was reading these books, you know, that not only increased my awareness of some of the greatest atrocities that have ever occurred in the history of human civilization, but they told the stories of what it was like for people to experience those things in a way that filled me with a profound desire to understand what it said about what it meant to be human, that we could do these things to each other. And I felt like I was learning about these events detailed in these books in school, but just as sort of historical fact and not as moral questions. Mm -hmm. um, and it was when I found this church, I found a space that really oriented itself around trying to make sense of those things. And I think that's a kind of universal need. I think we all need spaces where we can go to reflect on the big questions of life. And I wonder often, because this church that I converted into was an extremely theologically conservative church that was fixated on issues of sexuality, and I was also queer, and uh, it created some real problems for me for years. And I want <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sorry. I could see that. Yeah, it was. I could it was see why that would be a problem. Not a fun time, and you know, I especially since you went there for moral guidance. I right? did. Yeah. Well, that was kind of the big irony, right? I became a Christian because I was looking to make sense. Not of moral guidance, but a moral and framework. Let's and, say. Yeah. and instead, I really retreated within myself. I isolated myself off from everyone as I was struggling mm -hmm. with this, and my own sort of personal suffering increased a lot. And, you know, I was very fortunate because my mother, um, who was not real particularly religious, found a prayer journal where I was writing about these things, which was mortifying at the time. I was, I mean, I cannot even describe how See, upset I would I say, was. well, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. Let's just go with that. Um, <laughs> sorry. This is maybe the place where I am supposed to argue back. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I, what she did was she took me to speak with a Lutheran pastor who offered me a, an mm -hmm. LGBT affirming perspective. And that was hugely helpful. Um, but I, I often look back in, on that time in my life and I wonder, what if there had been more options for me? What if I hadn't had to end up in this very, you know, theologically conservative church? What if there had been a humanist center, for example, um, that could have been a space where I could have found those things that I was looking for without some of the other pieces of it. And even when I moved into more progressive churches, I still always felt like I was trying to, in order to get the, the good stuff, the community, the social justice, I felt like I was having to convince myself that I believed things that I didn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would love to see more spaces where people can go and connect with others and find community that don't require that kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance that I experienced. Well, that don't require anything beyond the desire to be of service. Mm -hmm. I mean, those spaces are sorely lacking in our, you know, culture right now, just in general. Yeah. Like, it's it's not just that atheists or people potential, who are potentially atheists need that. It's yeah. that we're all lacking. Well, and, you know. In, in those spaces, they just don't exist for us anymore, which is actually, I kind of want to get to this question yeah. before, before we end this segment, which is that, it might. I started off by saying I'm used to looking at the rise of Trump and the rise of the alt right. Um, if there's a faith lens, it's the faith lens of you know Christian white nationalism, and there evangelicals voted for Trump, you know, by a large majority. What do you think about the coexistence in the Trump coalition between the alt right and light right alt light alt light whatever it's called 
uh, atheists and evangelicals. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, it requires some compartmentalizing. Because I, I also think, think Trump part. is probably a functional atheist. Yeah, I mean, you know. I can't speculate really, but he he's doesn't, told us he's, he doesn't he's strike me said. as a particularly religious <laughs> man. I mean, he, you know, yeah. he said he'd never needed to ask God for forgiveness because he had never done anything wrong, I think. Um, so, yeah, he doesn't strike me as a particularly religious man. But, yeah, I mean, it's odd. I think, you know, uh, one one thing I talk about in that vice piece is, you know, George Hawley's book, Making Sense of the Alt-Right. He talks about, you know, in from what he's seen, the alt-right is a more secular population than the sort of general public overall, um, that there is a greater proportion of atheists, agnostics and secular folks in, in the alt-right. That's what he said. Um, and, you know, I and and I've seen this, too. I mean, you see some of these bigger names in atheism or some of these atheist bloggers or, you know, the atheist YouTube accounts that have million subscribers that are, you know, pro-Trump. And they are aligning themselves with figures who are, you know, very religious in some ways. And it's odd to me that they... Steve Bannon's actually a perfect example of this. Yeah. Because he quotes um, atheist thinkers. Mm -hmm. He himself, I think, is calls himself a Catholic. I mean, I shouldn't say... Okay, he's a Catholic. Sure. I mean, we'll who take knows? it at face yeah. value. Sure, sure. Um, and, but, it seems out of line with my understanding of Catholicism, but you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially the people he's quoting, who are like old school uh, pagan uh, philosopher uh, Ben Benoist, I think Benoist, mm-hmm. something like yeah. that, uh, and via viola viola. That's an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> I am blanking on the name. But these two kind of fascist philosophers, one of which is like a pagan, one of which is an atheist. So anyway, so you were but you were saying you're what you think might help make sense of this. Yeah, I mean it's it's strange to me that, you know, we see some of these folks in atheism cozying up with some of these uh, these people who are sort of deeply religious because for years a lot of them have been incredibly not just dismissive of anyone who is religious, but really sort of hostile toward them. And I think it shows that ultimately, you know, religion was never really the issue. And I think that's what some where some of the hesitance or the the um, unwillingness to kind of name the fact that there are alt-right atheists. And I'm not saying in the vice piece or in general that more atheists are moving toward the alt-right than among any other sort of segment of the population. I just don't think I can make that claim. There's not data. But there are folks who don't even really want to acknowledge that they exist or who want to say it's, you know, just a couple of bad actors or something like that. And I I think part of the reason why is that to acknowledge that there are alt-right atheists is to sort of undo the house of cards that a lot of these folks have built up their kind of narrative on, which is religion is the problem. And I think that, you know, these alliances that we're seeing shows that that's really not not the case. And and the fact that there are alt-right atheists shows that that's not the case. And, you know, I I understand not wanting to sort of turn that critical eye inward. It's very hard to do. But I think it's made more difficult by the fact that there are people who have said for years now that religion is the problem, right? And so when you've decided that religion is the problem and you've sort of cast these certain things in the category of religion. And you stop thinking about the other kinds of moral frameworks that, right. that, or, or failings. Right. And you, so you say, oh, racism, that's a religious issue. Right. Sexism, that's a religious issue. Homophobia, transphobia, et cetera. These are all religious things. Then it becomes easy to think that you've kind of inoculated yourself against those and that you couldn't possibly have those issues because those are religious issues. And so what it results in is I can't possibly be an Islamophobe because I am 
I, I hate all religions. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole. I mean, yeah. that's a whole nother can of worms <laughs> for sure. But, that, but that's but, that's what right. they say. And so what I've what I've experienced in movement atheism over the years. I mean, overall, I've experienced people who are genuinely, you know, trying their best, who you know are trying to make sense of things that are really hard to make sense of, right. and. Overall, I would say my my primary experience has been one of um, of you know meeting really wonderful people. Affirmation, let's say. Yeah, an affirmation. But I have also experienced atheists who have you know been very homophobic toward me, and when that's sort of pointed out, I, there's a this very dismissive kind of reaction to it because again, there's this idea that that's a religious issue, that's not our issue, and so similarly, I think with the alt right. There is this sense that, you know, that is a a Christian issue or that, you know, the KKK, that's a Christian thing. Nazis, you know, that's a religious thing. And what it results in is an unwillingness to entertain the idea that perhaps this is all more complicated than saying that religion is the source of all these problems and that maybe it's something more deeply human, something more tribal, something that we all engage in including in atheist spaces. Yeah. So, And I, I'm thinking about Sam Harris and race science and thinking I can't possibly be a racist because my feelings about black people are based on science. Right. And that's, <laughs> I mean, and that's a whole an, another yeah. thing is, you know, this idea that atheists, I may think they're inferior, but that's a scientific belief. Right. And, the, you know, a lot of atheists, they may not come out and say it in such an explicit way. And again, I should say people who are involved in movement atheism, I think that there's a whole segment, a much larger segment of atheists out there who are not at all involved in I'm, these things. I am yeah. nodding a lot about yeah. this because <laughs> I really I do hear from a lot of atheists yeah. um, uh, when I talk about my faith. And I always want to say, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, which is that I acknowledge that I am that Christianity has done some bad shit. And I also want to acknowledge that while we're talking about atheism and its overlap with the alt-right, like totally not, this is not endemic to atheism in exactly. general. No, and this is not just an atheism issue. Right. I just speak about That's this actually, because I think I'm an we, atheist. That's actually, I think, what yeah. we both are, are, are getting to, which is this is a human issue. Exactly. And it's much more difficult to deal with as a human issue. But I do think that there are particular features of movement, organized atheism that lend themselves, just like I'm sure there are different particular features of Christianity. There are definitely particular features of Christianity that lend themselves to an intolerant way of looking at the world and their particular parts of. Exactly. And so and I think one of those things in atheism, besides the kind of confrontational, you know, sort of trolling, if we want to use shorthand that we discussed earlier, I think another one is this. Often unspoken idea that atheists, although sometimes very explicitly spoken idea that atheists are inherently more rational, Mm -hmm. right? And so when, you know, you've got Sam Harris talking about race science, people who then defend that are like, well, he's not being, you know, bigoted. He's being rational. He's just pointing to the facts, you know, which is A, not true. And B, again, shows, I think, uh, a reluctance to interrogate our own, you know, irrationality. I mean, there is a lot of, if we want to go, if we want to play this card, there's a lot of science that shows that we like to believe that we reason our way into thinking things. And that's not as true as we like to think it is that a lot of the things that we believe are shaped by forces, by other forces. And oftentimes they're forces that we are sort of, uh, you know, born into, we're born into a society that is, um, you know, that privileges white cisgender men um, and, you know, interrogating 
the ways in which that has impacted a movement that is um, whose sort of most vocal and most visible representatives tend to be white cisgender men is not, you know, it, it is not an easy thing to do, but it's an absolutely essential thing to do. Um, so I do think that this idea that atheists are more rational than religious people is not just false, but also contributes to this issue. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting uh, that the movement atheists uh, are so down on Christianity, considering how much Christianity has done for white, straight, cisgendered men. <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah. that's, you know, like they're winners, like on both sides of this thing. But I mean, that's actually what these two kinds of intolerance have in common mm. is the way that they privilege that particular identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, and <laughs> you're just like, I, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, and part, <sighs> of, part of why I feel particularly compelled to speak out about this issue specifically, even though over the years I've kind of moved away a bit from writing as much about atheism, especially online. But one of the reasons why. So I wrote this piece last fall for The Washington Post about why I don't really write about atheism online anymore. But while I was working on that, I found that there was more I wanted to say specifically about the sort of intersection of movement atheism and online atheism and the alt-right. And part of why I feel especially compelled to talk about that um, because believe me, it's not, I'm not like jumping up and down with excitement to be talking about this. I would much rather be writing about other things um, and having other conversations. But I feel as a white cis man in a movement where white cis men's voices tend to dominate the conversation, I feel compelled to name this problem because I think in many ways I'm complicit in it, you know, or at least I, you know, I benefit from being a white cis man in a movement where white cis men's voices are elevated and where the voices of women and people of color and uh, gender nonconforming folks um, and people who come from a religious minority background, oftentimes, um, you know, those voices who for years have been articulating, you know, the fact that movement atheism has issues around race and gender um, and minority religions, too. It's I, in a weird way. Christianity is also privileged in movement atheism. Yeah, they do seem a lot of people in movement atheism do seem to be particularly venomous in the ways that they talk about Islam, for example. Um, and also we're for are, are, are define themselves in opposition to Christianity, like right. in a big way, like I'm not that. Right. Well, and, you know. Christianity absolutely is the target of some of these, you know, movement atheist folks. Um, but I, you know, I do think that oftentimes there are key differences in the ways that Christianity is talked about and Islam is talked about. And one of those big differences is a, a failure to acknowledge the fact that Christians benefit from a great deal of privilege in our society. And so pushing back against um, sort of intolerant expressions uh, of Christianity is kind of punching up. Whereas Muslims in the United States already experience significant marginalization and bias and bigotry. And so it requires a willingness to be more careful in the ways that we talk about, you know, issues around Islam. And I think there has been an unwillingness on some people's parts to do that, uh, to acknowledge that it's that talking about these things in different ways isn't, you know, because that's one thing that I hear more and more from some of these folks in movement atheism is, you know, oh, yeah, we, you're fine with criticizing Christianity all you want, but we can't say a word about Islam. And it's it's not that. But it is acknowledging 
that Muslims and Christians occupy very different spaces in our society and that taking that into account is essential if you know if you believe in the importance of you know being able to criticize religious ideas then you should also believe in doing it in a way that is effective and where you know you are um focusing on the ideas and not on the people and i would also say you should probably be doing it in a way that allows space for people to express whatever ideas they want to express mm-hmm. which is why the punching up to christianity you know as a dominant religion you can make should make you something of an ally almost to some minority religions, right? Because you should that in in fact, the tradition of atheism in the U.S. is that case, Mm -hmm. which is that we are trying to uh, disincentivize Christianity so that people of all faiths can feel free to express who they are, atheist, minority religion. Right. And that's where I would position myself. But I think that there are genuinely people in movement atheism or online atheism who don't think that and that actually would like to just see a totally secular society as if somehow a secular society will be free of these other issues that um, we still see in atheist spaces. So I think, you know, part of this is, I'm sure I've said this eight times already, but I think part of the hesitance is we have to, it, it will require acknowledging that maybe this idea that religion is the source of many of our problems or that, Religion is sort of inherently, you know, the the cause of racism or those. I think it it requires disentangling that a little bit. And um, when you are so deeply invested in that narrative, I think it's really hard to look at it critically. I agree. And we're going to take a break. Great. Um, and I return to this to some of these same ideas. Sure. Be right back. Stitch Fix is one of the sponsors that I have that I was using long before I even thought about having a podcast. I absolutely love this service. Um, I love clothes and I hate shopping. I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I I love, well, I love clothes. I hate shopping in person, let's say. I love browsing online. I love looking at fashion. I hate like dragging myself to a store and trying on stuff in a, you know, kind of gross fitting room and having people judge me because, you know, I'm, I'm probably judging them. So Stitch Fix is like a cool catalog delivered to your home of clothes that you are probably going to love. Um, You have a personal stylist that sends you a personal note with each Stitch Fix. And for me, I schedule them every other month and they're like, they're like a little gift for myself. Uh, And it's fun to like put on the outfits and to try on them with, uh, you know, things that I have. So I see if they work with things I already have. And I also ask my stylist to push me a little bit to try some maybe trendier things that I wouldn't try if someone didn't tell me I would look fantastic in them, which my stylist does because my stylist looks at my Pinterest page. So she knows what I like. She knows what I look like. And I am honest about what my measurements are. So she knows what's going to flatter me too. Each Stitch Fix box contains five items. And again, you can try them on at home and see what works with your clothes that you already have and what doesn't work. And you only pay for the items you keep. And sending back items is easy. They cover shipping both ways and you get a bag to return stuff in if you're going to return it. There's no subscription required, by the way. I get every other month. You can just get it when you ask for it, monthly, quarterly, whatever. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash friends. And you will also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your next order. 
Again, that's stitchfix.com slash friends to try Stitch Fix today and get 25% off your first order when you keep all five items. Stitchfix.com slash friends. Thrive Market is my new favorite online store. They sell all the top organic and healthy products at 25 to 50% off, and they're shipped straight to my door. I believe I was just talking about how I hate going shopping. That's been a real theme uh, in these ads on this episode. And Thrive Market has all the top premium healthy and organic products that you can get from a grocery store. But unlike your typical organic or non-GMO products that are marked up to premium prices... Thrive Market sells the same organic and non-GMO premium products at wholesale prices. Now, how do they do that? Thrive Market cuts out all the middlemen and works directly with brands, and then they pass the savings on to their members. And even better, for everyone who signs up, Thrive Market donates a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So together, we are all making healthy living affordable for everyone. That's a company that I am honored to support. Thrive Market also makes it super easy to shop. Not only is it all online and shipped straight to your door, but every single product on their site is tagged with over 90 different values. So in one click, you can sort by non-GMO, organic, vegan, gluten-free, paleo, sustainable, whatever it is that's important to you, they have thought about it and tagged it appropriately to the food items you're looking at. Like, you know how you might be shopping and you are looking for vegan, but maybe also gluten-free? You can sort by those two variables. Uh, If you're looking sustainably farmed and also paleo, you can do that. Sustainably farmed, non-GMO, organic, vegan, gluten-free, and paleo, you can sort that way too. And you can get 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. Keep in mind, Thrive Market's prices are already 50% off, and now they're giving you an extra 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. Now, you may be going on a grocery run this week, but why not give Thrive Market a try and shop from your own home? Visit thrivemarket.com slash friends. Again, that's thrivemarket.com slash friends for 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. You can trust that Thrive Market's options will be sourced from the best ingredients at the most affordable prices. They do all the homework for you. That's thrivemarket.com slash friends. And now for our listener question, which comes from Andy. Chris and I will be joined by Diana Butler Bass, a historian of religion, really cool lady and author of Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. And a reminder, if you have a question for the pod, you can write us at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And be sure to let us know if you're okay with us using your question. And if you want, include an audio file of your question like Andy did. Thank you, Andy. Here it is. Hi, Anna. I have a problem. I hate Christianity. So I grew up in a very conservative Christian house in the South. My parents are very religious, and when they discovered that I was questioning my sexuality, they sent me to gay conversion therapy. I felt betrayed and abused, but I always thought they would come around eventually. So fast forward to 2015, my partner of eight years and I finally got married, uh, but of my entire family, only my brother was there. The good Christians, they, they didn't attend because they felt it was a betrayal of their values. These same people then proceeded to vote for Donald Trump one year later. After the election, I was really mad. I didn't talk to my parents for over a year. And while we're speaking now, I'm, I'm still dealing with hateful feelings and outrage. 
I just can't reconcile these believers who fought against my civil liberties for years out of principle and yet compromise their own beliefs to support a man like Donald Trump. The, the hypocrisy just makes me seethe. How do I, as a gay man, forgive Christians in the age of Trump? Thank you. I want to welcome to the conversation Diana Butler-Bass. Hi. Hi, it's great to be with you. And um, it's really good to be with Chris as well. Thanks. Well, he's he's a doll. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we did a segment, a long segment. Chris and I did it. Uh, we're talking about him as an atheist wanting to take accountability and responsibility uh, in speaking out about the alt-right having a connection to atheism. And I think that this question now comes to you and me, Diana, in, in as Christians, to show some accountability for the connections that our faith has um, with a lot of intolerance. Yeah. Right after the election, I was invited to be on a panel at a big conference that Marianne Williamson, who writes about spirituality from a very broad perspective, she was hosting in Washington, D.C., and um, it was a panel of Christians, and we all got up and we sat down. And I looked at the panel, and I was the only white Christian on the panel. Everybody else on the panel was a person of color or from a a minority community. I think there was one person on the panel who who was gay but was Hispanic. And so I just looked at this, and I looked at the audience, and I blurted out. My very first words were, I'm so sorry. And they, people just were stunned and they like, what are you sorry for? And I said, I can't believe that people who look like me are the people who have voted Donald Trump into office and that it's their fear and their anxieties that have done this to all of us. And I started crying and I was sitting next to James Forbes, who's the wonderful African-American minister. And he leaned over and just hugged me. And we both started crying. And to me, that was my deepest response to what had happened uh, with Donald Trump is I felt this huge necessity to apologize for my own community. And in doing that, I was also revealing that I hurt so there are people who are within white churches. There, there are certainly lots of white Christians who are equally upset and equally afraid and equally worried um, as to what is going on. And, and so I just offer that as a, as, a, as a gateway story to recognize that there is a lot of complexity right now in white Christian communities. And... I feel the pain of people who are also afraid and anxious because I'm afraid and anxious. And that has made me uh, be a lot braver with my own people, uh, telling them that they're wrong when they're wrong and calling people out when they needed to be called out and also apologizing to people when an apology was necessary. We actually have sort of circled around the actual answer to this gentleman's question, which I think is... You don't have to forgive them unless they ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That's the answer to this question. Or, or unless you feel like as part of your growth as a human, right. 
you would like right. to unburden yourself from resentment and anger and whatnot, which I would say, looking at his experience, looking at the experience of many people who have been uh, harmed by Christianity, you don't don't do it. Don't do it unless you want to. Yeah. Like sometimes that hurt and that anger and that experience, that trauma is important to to be, just work through. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so I don't I, I want to tell him unless you are ready, don't worry about forgiving and yeah. definitely don't forgive people who don't ask for forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. If, if you're going to forgive, you know, do it for your own sake. Yeah. And I definitely think forgiveness is not owed. Um and it really is, as you say, it's about sort of making peace with things for yourself. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I've really gotten out of working with people of faith over the years as an atheist who experienced, you know, real hardship in fundamentalist Christian spaces as a queer person. One thing that's really sort of helped me process that stuff and move through it is working with other Christians and seeing both how they are working on those issues within their own communities and also recognizing, as as was said already, that Christianity is complex. Um, but but ultimately, I mean, it has to be for you. I, years ago, when I was doing one of my first um, sort of talks ever at this college in central Illinois, a young woman came up to me at the end of the event after everyone had left and told me very directly without prefacing it at all that I had a demon inside of me that was making me gay. <laughs> oh. Oh, and it gets it gets even better. She um, said she knew this because she had had a demon inside of her that had made her gluten intolerant. And so uh, she had had that, that cast I out. knew it. <laughs> I knew that's where gluten intolerance came from. Uh-huh. I knew it. I know my, my nephew has celiac, so I'll, I'll just let my sister know. We just need to schedule an right. exorcism. Right. Yeah. Um, but so she, you know, she told me this. And of course, you know, I felt Many different emotional reactions arising. I felt, you know, hurt. I mean, it reminded me of messages I had heard that were very similar when I was younger that had caused me to really, um, you know, struggle. And I felt angry. I felt a desire to explain to her exactly how wrong that was and also how harmful that idea is to people. Um, I felt, I mean, I'm not saying I'm proud of this, but I felt a desire to like mock her because she had compared my sexual orientation to gluten intolerance. I had all these jokes coming into my <laughs> Which head. Which is, let's know. face it, pretty funny. It's very funny, <laughs> even still to this day. Um, it still makes me laugh. But so, you know, I I thought of all these different ways I might respond. And because I, I had these different emotional ex- responses arising and I wasn't sure which one to indulge, I I just took a breath for a moment, just kind of decide what I wanted to say. And Something came out that really shocked me. Um, I told her, thank you. I said, I just want to say thank you because I know it can be really hard to tell someone something that you're pretty sure they don't want to hear and that maybe they're going to have a negative reaction to. And so I think it's brave that you told me this. And I'm going to assume that you're telling me this out of care and concern for my well-being. Because if you truly believe there's a demon inside of me, right, you know, um, I'm assuming that that's why you're telling me this. And so I just I want to thank you for, for this. And I think the only person more surprised than me by that was her, right? I would think she was expecting a confrontation. I could see part of why I said this was because when I took that breath to kind of pause, I noticed that she appeared to be afraid and I felt bad. I felt some sympathy for her, even though I also felt justifiably hurt and angry. And I think all of those things were very legitimate. I don't think she deserved a respectful response, right? I think we can acknowledge that, you know, beliefs or, or, views that dehumanize an an entire group of people and cast them aside as inhuman are not necessarily worthy of of respect. But 
despite all those things, I felt some sympathy for her. And it that sort of opened up this gateway for me to have this different kind of response. And I think she was expecting in some ways to see the demon come to life a little bit. And because she got this different kind of response, it opened up a doorway to a very different kind of conversation where I was able to learn that she didn't know any LGBTQ people. She had only heard us talked about. We were this distant idea that she had heard talked about in really demonized ways. She didn't know that ways. she knew. Right. Or if LGBTQ she knew LGBTQ people, right. people, she didn't know. And, you know, we were able to have more of a humanizing conversation. I was able to give her a human point of reference instead of it being this kind of distant idea that she was afraid of. And, you know, I love stories. I think stories are really powerful. And I especially love that, like, transformative moment where someone has a change of heart and they completely rethink their worldview. And I would love to say that as I was leaving town the next day, I saw her by the side of the highway with a big LGBTQ <laughs> right sign or something. Um, but that didn't happen. Wearing a right? rainbow. Jacket. Exactly. No, as far as I know, based on everything she said, she still walked away believing that, you know, LGBT being LGBTQ is wrong. Um, and and yet, you know, she did walk away seeing it up a little bit more closely, seeing it as more of a human thing. And so for me in that moment, and I should be clear, this story is like me on a very good day. This is not me always. If you need any proof that I'm not always this way, you can just look at my Twitter. Um, but, you know, I, for me, it was recognizing, and I'm not always able to have that kind of conversation. And I think it's important to assess your own boundaries in any given moment, but recognizing that sometimes I can meet someone more than halfway and that there can be real value for me. And I got a lot out of that experience. And I think if you're asking how to forgive Christians, especially white evangelical Christians in the age of Trump, you know, the the first question you need to ask yourself is, what is in this for me? And if there is some benefit there for you, then I would encourage, you know, you to pursue that. But only if there is some value there for you. What I just loved about what you said, Chris, was the fact that gratitude was your gateway into a different conversation. And as I thought about this question regarding forgiveness, I, I too was centering on the fact that you do not you do not necessarily have to forgive anybody who has not asked for it. And that's a lesson that was taught to me a long time ago by a Jewish rabbi who ta- who who said to me, "You know, Christians are too quick to talk about forgiveness." Mm. And, and I was really a little shocked when, when he said that to me and it was like, but, but, but Jesus. <laughs> You're like, that's kind of at the center of this. No. Grace is at the center, which is a little different than forgiveness, yeah. but I'll let Diana continue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, then I was thinking about all these stories in the Bible where Jesus actually was pretty hard on people mm. who were intolerant and horrible and didn't love others. So I I took that under advisement mm. and I've thought a lot about forgiveness and I've had to work on forgiveness in my own life from a whole different set of issues. And um, what I realized was that forgiveness and gratitude are these deeply linked realities mm-hmm. within our own lives. And that it's not so much me forgiving someone because I have to, you know, because some religious obligation tells mm. me that I must do this thing. And instead, it really becomes about me. It's like, what kind of person do I want to be? And there's a, there's a, a stance, I think, of, of real maturity, whether you want to call it spiritual maturity or just human maturity, where we can look 
as someone who has trespassed against us, someone who has literally come over our boundaries. And that's actually the thing in the Lord's Prayer, for example, that it says, we forgive those who trespass against us, who have violated our boundaries. And then the second half of the prayer is we have trespassed, as we forgive ourselves for trespassing against others. And so that is the moment. It's not really about forgiving them, the external them, but it's about looking at ourselves Mm. and saying, where do I engage in that kind of transgressive behavior? And what keeps me steady in being the kind of person of compassion and empathy that I want to be? And that you you went to gratitude to see her as human and realize that what she had done was hard and to say, thank you. She had given you a gift. She had really given you a gift. What she thought was she a gift. She had, exactly. She, she and, gave what you, she thought was a gift and you were able to see it as a gift. Exactly. And what strikes yeah. me in what you're just saying is that, you know, I think part of where I had that reaction to her was recognizing in her things that I have said and done to others, ways in which I thought I was being helpful and wasn't um, and was, in fact, hurting people around me. And I think. What helps me find forgiveness for people, if we want to talk about this question specifically, um, you know, for Christians and especially white evangelicals in the age of Trump, is recognizing that for a lot of these folks, they thought they were giving all of us a gift. Mm. And I absolutely do not see it that way, just to be crystal clear. Um, And I think that recognizing intentions doesn't absolve harm. It doesn't negate harm, but it's a starting place for me to be able to say, okay, it's not for some people. I think some people genuinely voted for Trump because they wanted to watch the world burn. You know, that's real. But I think there are a lot of people who really thought that they were doing something good, that they were really doing something helpful. I think perhaps the way that I would frame it, I don't want to get too, is that they thought that they were doing something good. I don't want to say I almost want to say not say helpful, mm. but good. And and because when I look at the people in my life who voted for Trump, specific people I know who voted for yeah. him, who are people that I love, what they thought they were doing was was making the world safe. Mm. Sure, right. I'm. I actually don't know if I would say that they thought that they were doing good. Hmm. You know, and I, I almost want to make that because I, I, that's a little. I want to be real specific about it. Yeah, because. It's almost if I thought they were doing something, I thought they thought they were doing something good. That almost be easy mm. to forgive. Sure. But I'm not sure if good was on their mind. Yeah. And that's just it. I mean, you know, I think that and pe- maybe I'm being nuanced for no, no reason, I mean, but- I think it's I think it's worth getting into because I think it's true that. It's it becomes easier to forgive if we can develop some understanding of where this comes from for me anyway, you know, I, part of what helped me have a little bit more sort of empathy in that moment when I was having that conversation was recognizing where, what she was saying might've been coming from and not just seeing it as an attack on me, but seeing it as something that was coming from a place of genuine concern for me. And, you know, I think that When it comes to why people have voted for Trump, I mean, you know, this is a conversation that A, would last a very long time and B, is beyond my expertise. Um, You know, I have some understanding, but I think there are people who could speak to it a lot better. But I think what helps me begin to stop seeing people who voted for Trump as 
these horrible, evil people who have destroyed our country or whatever, if I'm if I can be a little dramatic, um, is are destroying. Yeah. (laughs) But is to recognize, you know, that, again, I think a lot of them weren't they clearly they didn't see it the same way that I did. And, you know, that gives me at least a starting point to to feel a little less raw about it and start to think about how I can stop carrying around some of the deep woundedness and frustration and hurt that I feel about it. Because for me, ultimately, forgiveness is about my ability to live in a way that is consistent with my values. And part of what helped me in the past to stop carrying around so much woundedness around my religious trauma was, you know, being able to recognize that it was, you know, complex. And what that enabled me to do was to stop focusing so much on how angry I was, how different I was from those other people. And uh, that freed up space in me to focus more on the things that I do care about and that are that define who I am. I almost want to say to get back to this gentleman's specific question again, the way that how do I forgive evangelicals in the age of Trump is do some uh, feel free to take that question off of your agenda Mm. and do something that makes you feel connected to other people, whatever that is. I often recommend uh, walking shelter pets. Mm. Um, but <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, but do something that's not explicitly political, that makes you feel connected to other people. And you may find in yourself the ability to forgive because you've experienced some connection to other people. I don't know if there's any other way to do it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's absolutely true that when I am taking care of myself more, I'm more able to live out the things that I am aspiring to live out. And so if one of those is forgiving people who have harmed me, I'm much more able to do that when I'm, I mean, and it's some really basic stuff, right? When I'm getting enough sleep, when I'm eating well, when I'm, you know, doing things that give me a sense of fulfillment and meaning in my life. And, you know, I find... Walking the shelter pets is the part that I... Exactly. Well, I'm walking my shelter dog that I adopted. Right. Yeah, that's a big part of it for me. But, you know, I I find that, like, the times when I snap at someone on Twitter um, or when I snap at someone in real life, you know, or I hate that division between real life and Twitter as if it's this fake space. But, you know, in in meat space, if you will, quote unquote, um, oftentimes those are times when I'm overly... I'm working too hard. I'm overly stressed. I'm not taking care of myself. So I think that's absolutely a good, a good suggestion. Anything you want to add, Diana? Well, I was just thinking, I've been really thinking about what you said uh, around the desire to be safe. I do think that a lot of this happened because people felt embattled that they were looking for safety and that they felt like they were making the world a safer place uh, for themselves. And I think actually for others, Mm -hmm. Um, people I know, who voted for Trump have literally said to me, oh, we know you don't see it the same way, but really you will because we're going to make the, we're going to make the world <laughs> Sounds kind of ominous almost. You. <laughs> I, I felt a little like I was being lectured to by yeah. one of those guys from Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale, but um, oh, <laughs> that gosh. was sort of beside the point. Right. <laughs> but the, the thing about safety is interesting to me because by pushing towards making the world safer for themselves, they created this sense of of unsafety, you know, of real danger for millions of other people. 
And so what it, when I have a good day, like Chris is saying, you know, when I've gotten enough sleep and I've eaten well and all those done meditation, all those things, I can sort of look at this and see, you know, that's really interesting about politics is that often we work out of these deep emotional places where we think we're doing the best thing, making the world safer, um, but it really winds up having the opposite response. Mm. And so immediately, because of my training and the kinds of things that I've cared about for a long time in my life, I think of Reinhold Niebuhr's book, The Irony of American History. Mm. And that's the whole point of that book, is that when we're engaged in politics together, that what we think is going to be the best possible thing oftentimes comes out on the other side, creating the very monster that we were trying to avoid. And so there's this cyclical kind of irony that runs through our history. And that's the place where our self-forgiveness comes in, mm. to be able to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, are, are we really the, for ourselves, are we the best humans that we can be at this particular moment? You know, we all have flaws, we all have sins, whatever you want to call those things. Um, but to be able to realize that we all contribute in this sort of process of doing things we, we don't intend, creating the opposite results than what mm. we had hoped, that we begin to recognize there's this, this strange thing about being human. And, it, and we let ourselves off the hook, and we can begin um, in that way to reach out to others and at least recognize their humanity. Um, and even if they don't ask for forgiveness, we can, we can be the kind of people who will forgive from our side of the equation and then try to build a different sort of relationship with people we feel have wronged us. Thank you so much. This is like a, this is like an all-star panel. <laughs> I, I'm so excited that I got you guys together and I really appreciate you spending so much time with this question. Um, I, will, I am sure I will talk to you both again very soon. Oh, thank you for having me. And and Chris, your wisdom is extraordinary. Thank you. And thanks for joining us. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to learn from you. Thanks. And that is it for the show. If you have feedback, you can use that email that we use for listener questions with friends like pod at Gmail. I have asked for an official at crooked.com email. And, you know, I think I may get it. Um, the guys are kind of busy right now rolling out new podcasts and stuff, but I'm pretty sure that I'm also on their agenda. Uh, also, uh, speaking of agendas, put rate and review this podcast on your agenda. You can do that at iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you want to give some feedback, not via Gmail, you can do that via Twitter. Uh, the show's Twitter is at crooked underscore friends and Chris and Diana are on Twitter as well at Christy Stedman and at Diana Butler Bass. And last of all, some feedback for you. Thank you. Really. Thank you. This is the very end of the show. And I appreciate you listening so very much. We'll be back next week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first... 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.